This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, both past and present. No question, it's a new wave of Australian horror. And I think most of the people involved in it kind of woke up one day and realised that they were in it. You know, like most important film movements, most important historical movements, right? It's like, you can't fake it. You can't plan it. You just sort of wake up and history's happening, which sounds really kind of melodramatic or excessive, but it's really exciting. If you love horror, you'll know that voice belongs to Australian horror historian and scholar Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Welcome back to Sunburn Screens for part two of our exploration of Australian nightmares, the new wave of Australian horror. This podcast is a collaboration between myself and my fellow film lovers at Umbrella Entertainment. Many of the films we touch on, dive into and recommend on Sunburn Screens are available to stream for free on broly.com.au. There's even a dedicated Australian nightmares curated watch list. On our previous episode, we started out by looking at that small crop of precursor films that signalled we were on the precipice of a new wave of Australian horror cinema. Let's get back to our conversation with Alex Heller Nicholas. Sometimes I think with these genre cycles of film movements, it's hard to identify where they begin. I actually don't know if that's the case with this new wave, but where do you think it begins? For me, Babadook really marks contemporary Australian horror. I think that it's it's a real step away from the older kind of horror, sort of everything that preceded that. It, the Babadook was a game changer. And I don't think that we would be having this moment if it wasn't for Jennifer Kent and the Babadook. And it's that kind of energy that I think is running throughout the current wave of Australian horror. Ah, the Babadook. I mean, what more can you even really say about it? It is an undisputable modern classic, an icon. But let's get into it. Where'd you get this? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. Here's an archival interview with Jennifer Kent during the making of The Babadook. The idea for The Babadook wasn't really a conscious thing that, you know, a light bulb went off and I went, oh, <laughs> what about this idea? It started more with a, you know, a feeling and um, a kernel of an idea and then just grew as time went on. The themes of The Babadook that interested me, I'm very fascinated by what happens to people when they don't face things when they push down on difficulties in, in themselves and how does that, where does that go? Um, so, you know, if someone's had a, a tragic experience and they don't uh, deal with it, how does it sit in their life? And I guess the Babadook is, is an exploration of that idea, told in a very heightened way. So in the case of the Babadook, Amelia presses down on these terrible feelings so much that they develop an energy and become something that splits off from her, becomes separate from her, and then starts to control her. And what that thing is, who knows? I know, <laughs> I feel, I feel what it is, but it's up to the audience to interpret what that is. Whether it's supernatural or whether it's psychological is really up to the viewer. But that's, that's the basic idea for me, that's the kernel of the film. 
That was Jennifer Kent on The Making of the Babadook. Ten years after that film was released, production assistants on The Babadook have just made their first feature film. You might have heard of it. It's called Talk To Me. It's directed by Michael and Danny Philippou. They started out as YouTube filmmakers, making cool, weird, genre-defying stuff under the title Raka Raka. And now, with Talk To Me, these sibling filmmakers have broken bigger than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> yes! Where'd you get it from anyway? Apparently it was the hand of someone who could connect with the dead. I heard it was the hand of a Satanist. The other hand's just out there. White people shit, man, I tell you. <laughs> All right, let's do this! You know the drill. Say, talk to me. Talk to me. Here's Alexandra Helen Nicholas on the Philippou Brothers' Talk to Me. But Australian horror tends to historically stick to certain kind of subgenres. And I think that's what's so interesting about the current wave is that we're finding films that are working in subgenres that we're not really, we don't really have a history in. So you know, this year alone, we have three possession films. You know, we have Godless, Late Night with the Devil and Talk to Me. We don't have a long history of possession films in Australia. And suddenly we have this sort of this new blood has brought this new energy and this new interest in other kinds of stories. You know, we have two chamber pieces. We have Monolith and You'll Never Find Me, which are both these intense, incredible horror chamber pieces and again we don't really have a long history of that in Australia you know there are some films but not this sort of sudden spike so that's what the fresh blood in horror is bringing is bringing not just new stories but new kind of sub-generic engagement we just need to nurture genre filmmaking more in this country it's that simple I mean we are so lucky that the Philippus chose to make Talk to Me in Australia you know they were in conversations with American studios and it was just they, they chose to make it here. They could have made that film overseas with American actors, American accents, and they chose not to. So we were really lucky. We were really, really lucky that they just decided that this was the space that they felt that they could most effectively bring their vision to life. And it's kind of luck in a way. And it shouldn't be luck. You know, we should be nurturing these talents. You know, all of these sort of younger filmmakers who are making films on quite low budgets, they need the support. You know, they need those frameworks. You know, this should, it shouldn't be out of their... It shouldn't be out of their reach. And what I think is really exciting is that the conversation now is opening up just to include more people behind the camera. You know, we have Natalie Erica James who did Relic. She's a Japanese-Australian filmmaker. We have the team that did the Dark Place anthology, which is incredible. You know, Cody Bedford, Bjorn Stewart, incredible filmmakers making very different kinds of films, you know, totally very, very different. But there's space at the table for First Nations filmmakers. There's space at the table for people of colour. There's space at the table for women. And once we kind of open this conversation up to these different kinds of filmmakers, you know, our Jennifer Kent and our Indiana Bell, who's the co-director of You'll Never Find Me, you know, there's still space at the table for male filmmakers, you know, the Philippus, Nick Kazakas, who did Godless. There's still space at this table, but we're finding different kind of experiences coming to the fore, you know, like people who come from a Greek background are making horror. You know, it's it's not just the same old, same old. There's one film that you mentioned, Alex, that I absolutely adore, Natalie Erica James's Relic. I think it does something that great horror films do. It takes a personal feeling, a deep feeling, turns that into a metaphor but even beyond that it literalizes it it literalizes it into monsters in the case of this film we've got 
the idea of Alzheimer's, hereditary diseases, the negative impacts, the power that it holds over you, and then it turns it into creepy creatures. Absolutely. Look, I don't, I don't think we would be having this contemporary moment of you know the Australian new wave of horror, if we want to call it that. We wouldn't be having that if it wasn't for Babadook and Relic. I mean, they, they, you know, they walked so the Philippus could run. And, you know, the Philippus did work experience on Babadook. You know, they, they would be the first people to, to agree with that. You know, they were really directly influenced by Jennifer Kent's practice on set and, you know, her, her dedication to her vision. What I think is so interesting about Babadook and Relic is that they kind of, and I don't think it's conscious, but they really reimagine from a very fundamental ground up level, the idea of the tyranny of distance. Now, tyranny of distance is like it runs through Australian culture, right? You know, it's, and especially in horror. You know, tyranny of distance is at the heart of Wolf Creek. Tyranny of distance is at the heart of, of Wake and Fright. But in Babadook and, and Relic, distance as a kind of, you know, the horror of distance or the tyranny of distance, it becomes something that's really domesticated. So it's all about, and they're both kind of effectively set in a single house. They both focus on really traumatized female characters who are who are cut off from their society you know they're really alienated and they're really isolated and it's almost like a complete rethinking like what happens if we think about the tyranny of distance in a domestic space outside of the idea of masculinity in crisis and i think both of these films kind of address that you know this this sort of sense of domestic isolation and the horrors that can kind of stem from that you know, I, I think that they're very, you know, Babadook and Relic, aside from the fact that they're both made by women filmmakers, I do think that they're both really important films because they really are such a dramatic shift in the way that we think about isolation in this country. Isolation can happen in the suburbs. You know, isolation can happen in a house where there's other people in. Isolation doesn't have to mean you're trapped in the outback. Isolation is something that can be everywhere. And that's terrifying. We're about to get into a conversation with Natalie Erica James, the filmmaker behind Relic. If you couldn't quite pick up on it in my discussion with Alex, I absolutely love Relic. The film concerns a matriarch who goes missing and her daughter and granddaughter that return home and discover her absence. As her dementia increases, a haunting presence takes over that home. When was the last time you spoke to her? It's been a while. Could you be more specific? Mum? Gran? It's been a few weeks. I think she was scared. Scared of what? She thought someone was coming into the house. She forgets things. You know what she's like, it was her. Here's Natalie Erica James. It is a very personal film for me. My grandmother had Alzheimer's for a number of years before she passed. And I guess as an origin story, I actually came up with the film on a trip that I took to Japan to visit her. But this particular trip I'd kind of pushed off for a while and, and other things have come up. So I, I you know, had, <laughs> had kind of pushed it back. And when I eventually got to visit her, she, um, she couldn't remember who I was. And I had this kind of intense feeling of regret over you know, not having made the most of our time together. So I think it was that combined with the fact that she lived in this kind of quite an older Japanese traditional house that had always scared the shit out of me as a kid. And she used to have these kind of hoarding rooms, (laughs) rooms Mm. just uh, full of, you know, stuff that 
as her Alzheimer's got worse, you know, seemed to get worse as well. So I think the image of that and obviously the, her decline, um, those two things kind of came together. And yeah, that was the, the kind of starting point for the idea. Yeah, it's really powerful. I mean, around the time the film came out, my grandmother herself had passed away, you know, after a long, mm. like almost 10 years with dementia. And so I think I found it very resonant, not just because... I actually think what really worked for me about it was that it kind of captured like the dark feelings that you have with that. Mm. And I think it's there's something really powerful about genre and genre cinema in that it is like this really potent cinematic language that I think audiences are completely fluent in, mm. but they're not really cognizant of how fluent they are in it. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's just like a really powerful way to communicate emotionally to people was that what you were thinking with the film yeah I definitely kind of wanted to capture something on film like I suppose a an idea of like sitting within the feeling of that fear and that was that was like the driving force behind a lot of you know the the metaphor of the film and I suppose in a way yeah it is like a very visceral experience like I, I really wanted the audience to to feel it first and then kind of think about it later so, yeah, in, in the film, I think the three perspectives are really important because you, I tried to place everyone in, you know, Edna's mindset with the mm. Alzheimer's and the kind of fear of losing yourself and, you know, the, the idea of, like, reality kind of crumbling around you. And then Sam and Kay's, you know, the mother and the daughter's perspective of, you know, losing someone you love when they're, they're right there and then, like, slowly becoming a stranger and the fear of that. You know, there's something very uncanny about something that a place and a person that's familiar becoming unfamiliar and so yeah trying to capture their experience through that but also the idea that they're kind of being drawn into Edna's experience as well and that's when you get you know the the labyrinth for example and them kind of slowly becoming trapped so yeah it's I think you're right like it is that's kind of why I enjoy horror because it it does allow you to explore such a kind of base human emotion like fear in all these kind of incredible surreal ways can you talk about the idea of like externalizing those internal Mm. feelings and those fears because i think it's a it's it does so evocatively like with the space that you create it's a it kind of like i don't have any other way to put about like externalizing the internal yeah a bit about that like creating that space yeah i guess the space itself i mean i suppose there was a um i think the kind of inspiration for the space kind of being reflective of Edna's mind or the ins- inter- her internal kind of uh, breakdown or deterioration came from a documentary I saw about a man who had Alzheimer's and he was describing how he would get lost within his own house mm. and that he, you know, struggled to find his own kitchen over and over and over again. So that kind of maze-like labyrinth, I think I, you know, transposed into Edna's experience. But, you know, beyond that, I think there's always images that you kind of in the writing process cling on to, which, you know, you're always looking for that thing that's going to externalize the the thematics. So things like Edna's, I guess, final form as the other, you know, that's a very kind of physicalized version of the Alzheimer's and and the kind of black mold that starts to spread through the house and and that deterioration as well. So, yeah, you need those visuals. And and that's, again, what makes horror so great, that you can kind of lean into the surreal nature of those visuals and the supernatural kind of heightened world that they sit in. You know, if you were going to tell this story through a straight drama, it would be much more 
you know, literal, of course. Yeah, more about uh, the internal, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I think in this case, the form and the medium really fit the subject matter in a way that I felt was, you know, was going to express it the best. Yeah. And I can reflect those thoughts. I think it's the best too. <laughs> You've got three really incredible, moving lead performances that kind of build this ensemble and that really i guess where the emotionality of it really is yeah can yeah. you tell me about like the creative collaboration you had with your cast and how you kind of got them into the zone for this kind of work yeah they were so great i um i'm kind of yeah floored by how lucky i got with some incredible actors who really just um were invested in the story as well and who really supported me all the way through i had met kind of all of them individually and in pre-production you know I think someone like Robin for her in particular having to portray someone with Alzheimer's she ended up going to a nursing home to like an Alzheimer's ward just for some Mm. research things like that but I think in the end we kind of came up with our own thought process for Edna's kind of seemingly erratic behavior and I think that was something that you know we both agreed upon that Often when people with Alzheimer's seemingly act erratically, there is something that's triggering a response or that kind of behavior. And it might be that it's it's being expressed in another way, but there is kind of a trigger. So we, we kind of came up with a set of rules for that as well. But in pre, you know, in rehearsals, I think a lot of it was about sharing our own life experiences and kind of coming up with a a shorthand or like a common language to talk about them. We did a lot of obviously the stunt kind of rehearsals, which was a great icebreaker to get us all like working together. And then on set, you know, it's, it's tough doing (laughs) horror films for actors. Like the level of um, intensity is very high for them. I think Bella cried for like four days straight. So I think just creating an environment in which they can, you know, feel safe and feel that they can fail safely if they need to is is super important. And yeah, I genuinely, yeah, was it was one of the most rewarding experiences in my career. I think just being able to, I don't know, riff off their all of their ideas, but also you know, be a first audience for them and push things further for them is great. It sounds like it's a very vulnerable space to work in. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I think you have to, you know, it's similar to co-writing. You are talking about, you know, the deepest pain of your life, really, you know, grief and loss and everything like that. So and I think like as the writer director, your 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 pain is on the page. Right. So in a way, like you have to meet them with that kind of vulnerability or generosity to to have have it come back to you in a way. Did it ever feel like with this movie being so personal that you were sharing too much of yourself? <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes. Uh, I think the hardest part was probably the writing process, I would say. And luckily I had a co-writer on this one. So that was, um, you know, you can kind of share it with someone. But um, yeah, no, I, I certainly there were times during production. I think most of the time there's just so much going on that you're, you know, you have too much to think about to get bogged down in the personal stuff. But some, there were definitely moments on screen. There are certain scenes we shot, like when Edna's in the woods burying her photos. That really got me. Like I was <laughs> crying silently behind monitor. And yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. Is horror a place that you want to continue exploring? It's definitely a, a huge interest of mine, for sure. And, but I would say 
kind of broadly genre in general. I, I kind of like stories that go to a heightened place and, you know, anything from magical realism to sci-fi to horror is really my interest. But yeah, there's something about psychological horror that really speaks to me. I think maybe because I was quite a scared child growing up and maybe it's a way to kind of you know work through work through some shit or something or my fears but yeah I I think that there's something beautiful about merging fear and I guess beauty that was Natalie Erica James on Relic Continue with this theme of new and exciting voices in Australian cinema working in this wide genre space, I'm now joined by Goran Stalevsky, whose directorial debut is You Won't Be Alone, a film set in 19th century Macedonia about witches and the folklore around them. I feel like that movie is so emotional and for me it's a film about the building of human empathy. I'm wondering if you, like the way that it's kind of been put out into the world, it's been called a horror movie. Do you think of it as a horror movie or do you think it's of, of a film that defies genre? Um... I just feel like I don't know these categories are a bit <laughs> I don't know I I I don't think it's scary I think it's within the horror tradition in a broad sense but like no I always kind of framed it as a supernatural drama when I was talking to people about it because I felt if you go into it looking for a horror film it's going to be a disappointing experience frankly um and you know you can't control ad campaigns and all that kind of thing too much uh if you're me but it still felt like, you know, once people watched the film, uh, to be honest, I feel like critics let me down a little bit with this, where they just kind of went with what was in the PR <laughs> or how the film was, you know, packaged by the festivals. And, like, I feel like there's a pattern of following what you may have heard about a film rather than, wait, what is the feeling that this film is giving me right now? How do I word it for myself? To me on set, uh, when we were making the film, I was mainly saying, imagine if a fairy tale was based on a true story and we're making oh, the beautiful. dramatic adaptation of it, basically, like a documentary style as much as possible. And even with actors and crew, a lot of the time I was using uh, documentary references or actually the main reference I was using was The Tree of the Wooden Clogs from the 70s, an Italian movie mm. that I love that kind of captures you know rural day-to-day life very well. Or, you know, in a more contemporary context, Honeyland, which also comes from Macedonia, mm. where I come from. And I had friends involved in that film as well. And I thought, that's a great reference, you know, more than anything else. But at the same time, like, I do know a lot of people resisted watching it because of the horror label. And I was like, well, if you're going to be that much of a snob about life, like, if you don't think horror is, yeah. is worth You don't time, deserve the movie anyway. No, I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> you're not my audience. <laughs> So, yeah. Wow. That's so beautifully put because I feel like that's what really resonated to me. I'd love to kind of hear about the genesis of the film and researching that folklore. Mm. The genesis was I was watching a lot of films at the London Film Festival. I was living in England at the time. 
deeply unemployed uh, and trying <laughs> to kind of fill my days to distract from the meaninglessness of my everyday life. Wow. Um, that is the creative lifestyle. I <laughs> yeah. can relate to that a lot. Uh, a lot of my life was that last <laughs> few years. Um, so, no, I was going to a lot of uh, the London Film Festival and I watched a bunch of films in a row that felt like, well, The Assassin uh, by Hu Shen, who's a filmmaker mm. I loved. And like, yeah. you know, I read he made a martial arts epic and I'm like, where? <laughs> that guy? I mean, I love him. And yeah. then I watched it. I was like, well, yeah, technically it is a martial arts epic, but it's really just a Hu Shen film. <laughs> you know, he's taking some of the conventions of a genre and discarding the ones that he doesn't really need. Um and I watched a Romanian film called Afarim, which was technically meant to be a Western, apparently, which, again, in a narrative sense, I'm like, yes, some of those conventions were present, but I, it's clearly that director's personality. And I kind of went from there, because I don't normally write, or didn't normally write genre. I thought, I want to try and write something that is a horror film premise, but like mm -hmm. treat it as I would stories that I normally write. You know, follow where the feelings are taking me, rather than where plot conventions would. And when I say this, this is not at all to be like, you know, looking down at conventional genre cinema, which I think is a remarkable thing when you can achieve it. I think it's outside of my particular skill set. But I was like, what can I offer? Let me try and do something in my own sensibility that just takes this premise, but look, goes in a different direction. And I kind of had that at the back of my head. And then I kind of had the sense of these words coming in, which eventually became the voiceover. And this feeling of the world that surrounds this girl, woman, uh, person, I should say. And yeah, I kind of was sitting with that for a while. And then I thought I would try and adapt like a traditional Macedonian folktale or something. Because I, I thought I would have access to like shooting in mm -hmm. Macedonia. Like consider I was nothing and no one with no successes behind me. Like no one was <laughs> going to give me a lot of money to make like this existential mood poem about witches, but it's about their feelings. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so anyway, I was like, maybe if I make it Macedonian, there might be some access to something. Mm. So that was a strategic part. And then I couldn't find any folklore that was particularly inspiring. Women were mainly just in the kitchen and the men were doing most of the stuff that was interesting. Or usually not very interesting. Um, and at some point in researching real life cases of witchcraft, you know, in the region, I just came across this concept of, and th again, there wasn't much of a record, but like there was this sense that women who were accused of witchcraft were usually accused of taking the shape of another person or an animal to do their deeds. And I thought, wow, what if you could, you know, live in multiple bodies as multiple creatures and you're essentially living outside time and outside humanity. And I was like, that's enough. That's all I need. I just need that basic concept. And then I'll connect it with this feeling that I had and this sense of a personality. And yeah, kind of sat at the back of my head. Then a friend told me there was like a script workshop that had a deadline five days later. And I just typed out the summary of the story frantically, just under pressure. And then that became the basis of the screenplay. Well, it's also that thing again to like, you know, in terms of even with of an age or whatever, what I'm saying, I'm chasing that feeling where you're transported mm. somewhere else. It's within your body that you're transported. You're not out there in space, but it, it, there's something that when something is cinematic, it takes you somewhere else. And I feel like genre is one of the most, you know, potent ways to take take you somewhere else like what's more cinematic than you know uh, genres of all like whether it's you know horror or sci-fi fantasy or hell rom-com i find you know can be very transporting yeah. when it's good it just so rarely is unfortunately these days but um yeah like that's what i was looking for i wanted that genre element where we go you know 
the normal rules of your everyday are taken away and there's a freedom in it as well mm. and then you set up other rules that are also freeing in a different direction and yeah you'd be a fool not to run with them <laughs> that was Goran Stoleski on his film you won't be alone Goran has also made a film of an age which is one of my favorite Australian films in the last few years. We're going to be talking to him a little bit further down the line on an episode about queer cinema in Australia. Our next conversation in this episode is with filmmakers Jack Clark and Jim Weir, the directors of Bird Eater. With an ensemble cast, Bird Eater is a thrilling psychological exploration of Australian masculinity and gender dynamics. When a young woman joins her future husband for his Bucks party weekend, it plays out something not unlike a 21st century riff on Wake in Fright. This film is their directorial debut. It's had a massive success in Australia across a bunch of our film festivals. I'm so excited about this film. It feels so fresh. It's got incredible cinematography and craft and filmmaking that just doesn't look like anything else made in this country. Also, these guys went to film school with me. They were the year below me, so I'm really impressed and incredibly jealous of how great they are. You've been skydiving, Louis. I've been skydiving in Mexico. Honey! It was fun, but I didn't know that the planes that they take you up in, they don't have any seatbelts. So you can go up in them, but you, you can't come back down. So when you're up there at 15,000 feet, it's the only way you're going out. Kicking, screaming, shitting, spewing, coming. They'll fucking choke you cold and throw you overboard. It's too late. Tonight we own you. The boys own you. And the harder you kick, the worse it's all going to go down. So here's Jack and Jim from Bird Eater. I'd love to kind of talk to you guys about genre and the idea of genre because we have very similar if not identical film educations mm. <laughs> um, i'd love to hear your thoughts on like the ideas of genre in cinema as like a means for communication with audiences well it's using archetypes i think it's extending like character archetypes into the framework of the whole film in terms of what an audience can expect and i think that that's so valuable for a filmmaker it's kind of like a trojan horse like if you have an audience coming into a genre where they have a certain playbook in their mind of like how this film is going to go. Like we were using that for Bird Eater. Like you send people out to a property, they're all by themselves. Mm -hmm. It's one night. Like this is going to be the scene of a crime. This is going to be the scene of some kind of huge meltdown. There's going to be a death. There's going to be whatever. They have this Mm -hmm. kind of uh, playbook in their mind Mm -hmm. that you're very deliberately setting up usually in the first act. But that means that you can quite easily pivot away from that or pivot into interesting places. So you sort of... What we were wanting to do is use archetypes really heavily right at the start of the film so that the audience thinks they have a read on the trajectory of the narrative, but then that just gives you so many more options to play with after that. So I think that they were sort of treating genre as like a, yeah, as this vessel for 
using it because I know there's that there's that very typical like film school reaction when especially in screenwriting they get up and they start talking about structure and straight away there's a dude put up, puts up his hand and says well what if we didn't have a protagonist what if we you know what if they're not likeable it's like yeah, just understand <laughs> understand that they were trying to get across the idea of like Yes, and you can break the rules. Yes, the Coen brothers did break the rules. Yeah. You know, no country for old men. But it's like, just they understand why they're there. That's, the, that's how it works. Like, you have to understand the fundamental rules first. But the same thing applies to, like, how people see genre, I think. Yeah. We're excited about, like, the formal elements attached to genre and being able to take from here and take from there. But I think, yeah, mainly, like, expectations is what me and Jack talk yeah. a lot about. Like, where, where does an audience think this movie kind of sits in their broader kind of film-watching literacy? And how can we subvert their expectations, like, act-to-act act or even, like, scene-to-scene? Scene? There was an editor who, who watched a rough cut of Bird Editor that totally thought that it was going to be a monster movie because we kind of did the sound design on the first rough cuts, so they were very <laughs> heavy, kind of, like... Literal. Very literal, like, strange squawks and, like, animal sounds. <laughs> In, like, the forest scape. So he expected yeah. some kind of, yeah, like a pig or something to come out, <laughs> like, midpoint. Okay, um, you got to put that on the DVD. Yeah. That card's got to be on the DVD. That's awesome. I mean, I didn't hate the idea, but he, but he, was, he said it as, like, a positive thing because he just had no idea, like, where the film was going next. But that's, like, a really exciting space for us. Like, we, like we are interested in films that are – and it's the Festin thing as well. It's, like, constantly mm-hmm. dancing between just, like, total farce. And then the most serious topics ever. Like it's mm. a film about suicide and it's a film about sexual abuse, but it's also a film that is just like full of just like dope comedy, just like stupid, stupid people doing stupid things and yeah. like and constantly flitting between those two poles. Like I know Succession took a lot from mm. Festin actually mm. and I only found that out recently, but it makes total sense. That kind of like weird faux mockumentary style that's just like accessible for an audience because it feels like real life yeah i think that i mean truly that's one thing that i think you really nail in the movie one of many things <laughs> it's not just the one thing <laughs> one of many things i think it's like you really access that idea of tension like by setting up expectations mm. of it being people in the woods people in the outback people in a rural area alone mm. that it, the tension really escalates beautifully I, I saw it at i think maybe the first screening at sff yeah, made yeah. Voyage, yeah. i know it was fucking squirming the whole time i was literally <laughs> i literally was squirming i like I, I was restless it was working so well and so effectively on me and i think the other thing that really elevates that i i gotta say it's like one of the most the technique is astounding that you guys employ like the actual cinematic technique of cinematography i think it's one of the best looking australian films in memory and in a really unique way as well like it's not like oh every frame i could make it my desktop background it's like very evocative visceral cinematography it's a great cinematic language can you talk to me about kind of finding the design or the aesthetic of this film yeah well big shout out to our dop roger roger stonehouse first feature for them as well right yeah first feature for roger the main, the main idea in terms of how we were going to shoot it, the kind of rules that we gave ourselves, was that we wanted it to be kind of feel really heavy and like locked off for the first portion of the movie until it descends and that's when we go crazy. And we also like mirror that with the 
editing, our mm. cutting gets like really stupid towards the climax. Like we go crazy with it. So yeah, we wanted that just kind of visually mirror the descent of Louis and the boys. Also, a lot of it was just like limitations, mm-hmm. less shots in a scene. So let's make like one shot work really well or like second and third framing was something we kind of had to use out of necessity. A single setup had to work for kind of two or three shots, even though it wasn't necessarily going to be shown in like a one shot, Mm. have shots work for (laughs) multiple parts of the scene. I'm interested to hear your thoughts because, you know, this episode that we're talking about now is kind of broadly about this new wave of Australian horror Mm. and filmmakers, new voices working in genre Mm. as an access point. And... Your film, people have talked about it as a horror film. You mm. talked to me already about how you utilise some of like that language to mm. conduct like preconceptions in the audience's yeah. mind of like the direction or the propulsion of the film. Do you consider the film a horror film? No, we don't. We think we know we 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 know why people are saying it is. Like we we're definitely like just using it the genre as a grab bag for certain formal and tonal elements. We don't really think of it even in like a combination of genres as a horror mm. film, but yeah, we are kind of using it in the independent sphere just to sort of not not in such a cynical way as to just to get people in seats, but it's like I think that there is for an independent audience that's seeing an ensemble of faces that they've never seen before mm. from filmmakers they've never heard of, they want to have at least some kind of contract going in that like they're aware that I have my time is precious like they like they're aware they're going to try and do something like yeah. they're, they're going to try and upset me they're going to try and make me laugh they're going to try and do something so it's just mm. like oh it's a horror it's a comedy it's a you know we're going to we're going to try is basically what like <laughs> genre elements is saying yeah, like throwing a lot out there yeah like you're going to yeah. have something to talk about or you're going to have some kind of feelings about this film yeah um, I think it does depend on your perspective though it doesn't feel like a horror movie yeah. fast but in the same way that people think Wake and Fright is a horror. I was reading something this week about it is it is a horror movie, Wake and Fright. If you're with John Grant and you don't recognise mm. these types of men, it would feel like you're in a hellscape if you've never been to rural Australia. Yeah. But if you know those places and you know those people, uh, it's so relatable, it's more like a black comedy. And I think that distinction is similar um, in Bird Eater, that mm. if you... If you know guys like this, and I think most young people know guys like this in Australia, in Sydney in particular, it'll feel more like a black comedy. If you're totally unfamiliar with kind of Australian masculine culture, maybe more like coming from an international perspective, mm. it could feel more like a horror. So I think, it's, I think it's that. I think it depends on the audience. That was Jack Clark and Jim Weir on their directorial debut, Bird Eater. And keep your eyes peeled, because Bird Eater will be getting a cinematic release next year. Here, I just want to take a moment and look at another aspect of modern horror. A look further behind the scenes than we usually do on these kind of shows. With Indigenous horror, all of our communities have, you know, stories that are based in spirituality. And, you know, in my community, I'm, I'm, I'm both Darek and uh, Gamilaroi and or Gomeroy. And what you find is, you know, we all have... Uh, you know the boogeyman, or you know, or shapeshifters. So that there's a there's a real depth of stories that are untapped with the initiatives that Screen Australia did do, and with the current filmmakers that are on the radar, and indigenous filmmakers or First Nation filmmakers. I think 
you, you'll start to see uh, those stories kind of coming to the forefront. Yeah. Clever Man, the series, touched on some of those myths and legends. I think I think there are new voices coming through, both First Nations and you know, it's just Australian voices coming through, for sure. This is Andrew Dillon. He's a writer, filmmaker, and one of the most passionate horror and genre enthusiasts I have ever got stuck in a yarn with. I really want to bring him into this exploration of horror's new wave and the voices forged with it because he could see it all on the horizon during a multi-year stint behind the scenes at the funding body Screen Australia. Andrew is the first Indigenous Australian to work within Screen Australia's mainstream production and investment team. What I found at Screen Australia is that we, we ran a whole bunch of initiatives. Gender Matters was probably the, the flagship bringing female voices in. Predominantly, there were a lot of male directors around and that, that initiative was really successful. Mm. But a lot of our um, initiatives were about supporting minorities and offering new voices. And I think that's that's a result of what's happened now because the probably every initiative we had, we wanted to make sure that there weren't just white male voices being told, mm. telling the stories. And I think having diversity on screen is really important. And it gives us what you're seeing now. You, you you get different perspectives and different points of view and different cultural point of view. You know, a film that you might shoot and I might shoot will have different takes on various scenes because of our grounding and our background and our, and our heritage. So I think what I saw at Screen Australia was a, a real push to empower those and those voices. We did a lot of initiatives where we'd go out west uh, to the western, you know, western suburbs mm-hmm. of Sydney or all the regional remote communities. And we would support new voices coming through. And, and I think there's just been a general acceptance that, you know, we all have strong voices and, you know, they all should be heard. Can you tell me about the initiative you were running for Indigenous filmmakers yep. in this space? And, like, what were you doing to nurture those films and filmmakers? Yeah, so we, we ran a series of workshops. The latest result that I was involved in was Dark Place. I love that film. Yeah, so there was five independent films with a, with a kind of through line or a theme. So the initiative would, um, we do a call out and what we would ask for is a short film idea. Something that can be expanded into a long form feature film narrative. That's that's always the goal. It's the uh, same as what the Saw Boys did. They, they did a, an amazing scene uh, with the, the clap draw mm-hmm. and uh, basically... We would then support the filmmakers, help them with their scripts, bring in experienced scriptwriters, story editors, producers, and we would then partner them up with the producer. And then they would go through the process, we'd colour it down to the five films, and then as an agency we, we would actually offer the funding to do the short film. And that particular, those five short films in Dark Place were actually put together as a feature film narrative of sorts. And, you know, as a horror fan, it offered a, a, a wide variety of stories and takes and, and points of view. Some of the directors, you know, you had Beyond Stewart, yeah. uh, Cody Bedford, who is an amazing writer. She was the showrunner on uh, Firebite, which uh, was an Indigenous vampire uh, mixing of uh, genres. But uh, Cody's an amazing writer, but she's a really good director and her, yeah. uh, I really enjoyed her, her, her short film in that. I love that film so much. And Bjorn and Cody are friends of mine. Oh, so yeah. I'm a friend and a fan of both of their work. Dark Place came out in 2019. It's a horror anthology film featuring a collection of shorts from Indigenous filmmakers, Perrin Bonza, Rob Braslin, Liam Phillips, and the aforementioned Cody Bedford and Bjorn Stewart. It might be a little bit hard to find, but I was lucky enough to see it on the big screen at the Sydney Film Festival, and I truly believe it to be in the top tier of the anthology horror subgenre. Each film is fantastic, and they're all so tonally diverse. What do you think the future of Australian horror looks like? 
Well, I think it's in good shape. You know, I'm, I'm working on something which I can't name what it is, but I'm working <laughs> with the Spirit Brothers at the moment mm-hmm. on, a, on a remake. And behind the scenes, you know, I know there's a lot, you know, I still have relationships with Screen Australia and there are a lot of horror films. The um, Talk To Me 2 has been greenlit, which is great. You've got John Bell's The Mugai coming out. John did a short film, which was an initiative by Screen Australia. They ran uh, an initiative where they funded a short film that could be a feature film concept, but it was a one-off story, not an anthology. Mm -hmm. And on the back of that, The Mugai was conceived and and produced as a short film. I think think he had a budget of like $70,000. Wow. And then uh, it won South by Southwest, won a whole, you know, one, uh, I think it won St Kilda Film Festival. The short film? Yeah, the short film version. And then on the back of that, he's been able to raise a $9 million budget. Far out. Yeah, for a, uh, a, a long-form version of that story. Same actors, same, it's, it's you know, it is a, a 90-minute version of the same story, which um, with, you know, more, more toys, more effects. I think there's like 200 visual effects shots, something crazy like that. So, yeah, a <laughs> lot, lot of fun. This is John's baby as a writer-director. Yeah. Um, you know, read the script, seen the rough cut. Wow. Um, but, um, you know, it's him flying solo on the, on the creative front. And, uh, yeah, John and I have a variety of projects we're working on at the moment. But have seen the rough cut, seen, you know, and what I can say is, um, you know, John started his career as a director and mm-hmm. became a really successful writer. He's no, and he's known as an actor. He was in black comedy. He conceived the whole Black Force sketch, mm-hmm. sketch which was, you know, was well received. But uh, he started as a director and then became a, a writer and now is kind of getting back into directing. And he's a bloody good director. And what you'll see is a, um, what can I say without giving away anything? Um, <laughs> Just something to tantalize. Oh, look, you know, <laughs> look, it's all of our indigenous stories are, are grounded in some, some type of law or some type of spirituality. And I think uh, the Mulgai is a Bunjalung word, which is means entity, evil spirit. It's a presence. So that the theme of the original short is captured in, in the long form, but it's it's grounded in in a, a truth for Aboriginal people, and it represents a, a fear of being chased and being stalked. And it's a really you know it's both psychological thriller and horror. There's some really bump you know good bumps in the night, but there is a psychological thriller through it as well. And it's a really interesting story that he's created. And the performances are amazing. Like, yeah, You wouldn't think it was John's first that bad as a feature film director. Consider me tantalised. The short film version of Mugai from filmmaker John Bell can be seen online. And I'll be completely honest with you. I'll be watching it over and over until we get completely re-tantalised with the feature film Mugai next year. So keep it on your watch list. There's so much more happening in this space. There's so much for us to discover. So while I had Alex Helen Nicholas, I had to ask her what else or who else is out there. And I think Australian women have a lot to say about things that are horrific in lots of different ways. You know, we, we have, you know, Jennifer Kent doing her amazing work. We have Natalie, Natalie Erica James doing her very different work. And Alice Mayo McKay from Adelaide, who's a 19-year-old transgender woman who's made five horror features, working in this incredible kind of queer punk horror space. Horror gives her a space to talk about what is scary. And, and you know, and if you're a 19-year-old transgender woman from Adelaide, I'm going to guess that, yeah, right now there's some things that are scary for you. And I love that Alice has found her home in horror. I think we're very lucky. Alice Mayo McKay, I think, is one of the most exciting filmmakers working in Australia at the moment. She's, she's a superstar in the making. 
her first film, So Vam, I believe she finished just when she left high school. And that was picked up by the uh, international horror streaming service Shudder. Uh, her second film, Bad Girl Boogie, was picked up for US distribution. Her third film, and probably my favourite of her movies so far, T-Blockers, just won a major award at Outfest, which wow. is one of the biggest queer film festivals in the world. And T-Blockers is amazing. It's like, it's a sort of sci-fi horror film. And the premise is, what if there was a virus that made people really hate queer people? And it's like, it's like Garth Marenghi, right? You know, subtext yeah. is for cowards. I just love how yeah. she just right in there. Like, let's talk about what's going on right now through this kind of horror lens. And she's made two films since then. She's a machine and she's part of this sort of amazing kind of emerging kind of cluster of queer trans women underground filmmakers, people like Louise Weird, people like Vera Drew. Um, Alice is very much a part of that kind of scene, but she's also just the face of Australian horror right now, as much as the Philippus to me. And it's Adelaide. Like, What the hell is she's from Adelaide? What's going on in Adelaide? This I heard somebody refer to it as the Adelaide Gothic. Oh, wow. You know, we have Monolith. We have You'll Never Find Me. We have Talk To Me. We have Alice Mayo McKay's films. There is something going on in Australia, yes, but there is something going on in Adelaide very specifically. And I think that has to do with the fact maybe that if you're an artist, try living in Melbourne and Sydney at the moment. It's too expensive. Okay, what a discovery. A 19-year-old trans filmmaker that has made five feature films. This is unbelievably exciting. I've watched all of these films now. I love them. Alice Mayomaki, what a discovery. Did you see the news? Mass killer on the loose in the streets of our town. It's got to be over 10 years ago now. It was Halloween then too, and there was a bunch of killings just like these right here in this town. How's it going? When my mum died, everything they found out about her, I just never forgave that. Some psycho kills her and they're more freaked out that she's queer. She was killed, probably by someone just like them. Here she is. Let's talk to her. What do you think it is that draws you to horror? I think I just like the mix of like genres within like that specific genre. Like there's so many like ways you can take horror, obviously, and it's also what you can cover in horror. Like I still love dramas and like mm. obviously like love film in general, but like there's something about making horror as well where it's like you can have like a character study and do like all these like cool things and like talk about politics and stuff, but then also have like camp and like colourfulness and just like gore and really fun shit. What are your thoughts on like this this kind of idea of like being a genre being a way to directly communicate to an audience? Um, I mean, I love it. I think that's why it like appeals to me so much. It's like because you could just like put those things in like a drama, and I feel like maybe audiences would feel like I don't know they'd be like, oh, it's like sad or like oh, it's affecting me emotionally, but I'm not also getting that enjoyment out of it. So I think when you can combine those things or like multiple things into one film, it's like. I don't know, they have something to take away, but they can also still have that enjoyment, have that humor and have that gross out factor, I think maybe is like more effective as a whole, especially for people like like horror fans. I don't know, like they're more willing to watch a horror film rather than if they saw like, oh, a trans drama. But if it's a horror film, there's still like elements that would appeal to them, I think. Yeah. Do you feel like an Australian filmmaker? Um... I don't know. It's really it's a tough question because like my films are pretty like much like quintessentially Australian. I think in terms of language, like it's not like American fired or like mm. any of that. But at the same time, only now like I feel like my films are starting to even get 
slight recognition in Australia, whereas like America, like when Shutter took that on board, you know, mm-hmm. and like Bad Girl Boogie, like was featured in like LA Times and stuff like that. So it's like, I don't know. I feel like I'm an Australian filmmaker where I make films, but like audience wise, I feel like it's very like American, like European for sure. What do you think needs to happen for, you know, Australia to recognize like young filmmakers that are working in the genre space? Um, I don't know. I think just something about international audience, I think they're more open. Like obviously like they're bigger population sizes as well, especially America. So like there's like a greater um, diverse like fan base for genre films and stuff. Um, I feel like the Australian genre film audience are like more the most conservative, I think. Even if you go to the genre fest, I feel like it's the most like traditional straight white male. So I don't know. I just think, I don't know. Can we talk about gore then? Like, what are you trying to challenge yourself? Like, how to create something new, something that you haven't seen before when it comes to gore? What What do you want to do with it? That's such a good question. I just love gore, and, I, and there's like a sense of like I don't know. It feels like Christmas Day when you're shooting like a gore scene. Like me and the DOP just got so excited. Like I remember like wrapping the camera and like glad wrap when we had like the neck like blood spurt and just like going so far. And there's just something so like I don't know. It's just it never gets old. Like I mean, maybe to audiences it does, but like creating that. I mean, obviously you want it to like progress the story, but also it's a slasher film, so you want gore to be gory. Yeah, I don't know if I'm trying to one-up anything gore-wise. I mean, the brain, I think, and that is the most creative kill we did. In the Christmas film, there's, like, some, like, Viking ritualistic death where, like, the skin's, like, taken apart and, like, hooked up, which I think is not new, but it's probably the most fucked-up thing we've shown on film. One thing I really love about your films is your titles have like a bit of that signature, almost like a Spike Lee joint. You call your films in the title cards a transgender and queer film by Alice. Uh, Can you tell us about that, like having that front and center? Yeah, so I guess that's kind of like a riff on like what Gregor Rocky does when he did like, you know, a heterosexual film or a homosexual film. And I also think, you know, when you get to the title card, like, I don't know, I just kind of want it to, I mean, it's fun, but it's also like telling audiences what they're going to get if they didn't know already. It's like, this is what it is. It's made by a trans person. It's just unapologetic in that sense. And yeah. It makes me so happy to say it. The future of Australian horror is in good hands. One of my missions with this podcast is to help unearth those rarer hidden gems of Australian cinema. So I asked Andrew Dillon if there were any films in the horror space in Australian cinema he wanted to shine that light on. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, look, uh, I think first, uh, it's, it's a 1979 uh, vampire flick from Australia. Mm-hmm. Now, we've all seen Edward and, and the whole Twilight franchise and <laughs> and uh, but it's a really deeply grounded horror film it's um, almost like science fiction as well yeah right? it's got the science fiction elements i mean it's funny a lot of the films in the from australia have that science fiction mm. element which is a bit out there but it's it's mixing with those genres but this was like really gritty balls of the world type of horror with the sci-fi element Thirst and many of the other films that we've covered across these two episodes exploring Australian horror, including The Babadook, are available for you to watch right now on brolly.com.au. So that was our odyssey into the new wave of Australian horror. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you didn't get too scared. But hopefully you've discovered many great films for you to dive into. 
A lot of these movies are available on Broly, the streaming service from Umbrella Entertainment, and it's all free for you to explore and get stuck into. Keep your eyes peeled, there's so much happening in this genre space. Next time on Sunburnt Screens, we're exploring the most wickedly wild era of Australian film, Ozploitation. There's so much to discover, so I'm giving you an introductory entry point and focusing on the shocking and schlocking cinema of Brian Trenchard-Smith, the director of The Man from Hong Kong, BMX Bandits, and many, many more films. Heaps of them are on Broly right now if you want to do some brushing up before we chat to Brian on next week's episode. So we're going to be talking to Brian Trenchard-Smith about genre cinema, his works, and I don't know, Brian, is there anything else you want to talk about? Oh, um, do you have uh, several months? Um, <laughs> Maybe not quite a month, but a while. Yeah, uh, I hate a chat, as you know. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I do, I enjoy talking about movies. I mean, look, let's talk about genre. Yeah, genre has always sort of obsessed me, really, since childhood. I just fell in love with the moving image and going to the movies, which had a sense of occasion to it once upon a time. And until then, my name's Alexei Toliopoulos, and thank you for joining me. I guess I'll see you next time at the movies. And I really love saying that now. I think it's my catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs>